If you remember last week, we looked at um, the history of the world all in one night. No wonder it was long. No wonder I had a row with Pauline last week, last week for being uh, over 30 minutes. And, uh, what's funny about that? <laughs> That's the best response I've ever had from a congregation. <laughs> But we looked at the history of the world through the eyes of, or the eye of God's prophetic word, of course, from uh, the exile of the Jews in, uh, into Babylon in 603 BC to the entry of uh, General Allenby, if you remember, into Jerusalem in 1917, 2,500-odd years uh, in between. We saw as... Uh, Allenby went through the Jaffa Gate that had been blocked up for 900 of those years um, and um, he put to an end the Gentile rule over Jerusalem the Ottoman Empire, the Turks were, were kicked out mm-hmm. and um, from that moment on uh, it started to pave the way for Israel to return back to their homeland now, not only to their homeland, of course, but paved the way to the temple. You know, this didn't come for uh, a quite, quite a number of years later, but it was a part of the plan. And we could see that so plainly as we looked at God's word last week. It was a, a part of the plan. Now, we could go on and on about talking about that, what happened uh, there and since, uh, but I want us to go back again uh, to where we come from. And tonight I want us to look in the scriptures and see what was happening during that same period of time, uh, or going back further as well, um, concerning Jesus and, uh, and his, um, the, his, his messianic lineage. That's what I want to look at uh, tonight, and uh, to see what the Old Testament says as it relates to the birth of Jesus. Now, we have a clue from the words of our Lord when he was talking to the two that were walking on the road to Emmaus, if you remember, uh, when he sort of drew near and started to eavesdrop on their conversation. And of course he joined in and he steered those conversations around to himself. They were talking about him And he wanted to put them straight because what they were saying was confused. What they were saying was was wrong. It was uh, uh, the wrong way of looking at things. They were disappointed because they thought Jesus was the one. They were right. He was the one. But uh, they didn't understand that he had to go through the sufferings that he did. And that's what he says. And then he said to them, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. In all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, this is the clue um, of what we are doing tonight. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we can see that the same prophets 
who prophesied the demise of Israel and the restoration of Israel, as we saw last week, the same prophets who gave us the history of the world also gave, gave us insight into the identity and the mission of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. In fact, later on that night, if you remember when um, Jesus went into the home and, and broke bread and they dis- discovered or they realized that they were in the presence of the Lord themselves. The next scene, of course, is them running back to Jerusalem and bumping into Jesus again in the upper room this time. And he says something uh, again about the Old Testament and about how the Old Testament speaks of him and his mission. And this is what he says. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses. So there we have one block of, uh, of Scripture, the, the first five books of, of the Bible concern Jesus and then he calls them then he says and the prophets so we have this big swathe of books after the Psalms that deal uh, with the prophet with Jesus and his birth and everything and then he says and the Psalms so, you know, so the, you know, in other words he could have said the Old Testament you know to save all that ink that have been spilt on those words over the last 2,000 years, he could have just said, the, the scriptures talk about me. They talk about me. They, con- they concern me. And he opened up their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And so it's obvious that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. And therefore must of necessity be included in this and Jesus and his lineage and his the, the sort of the progress that God made to get him from Adam or from Eve really from Eve all the way to Mary uh, is the subject of prophecy. So not only are we looking at the, the sort of the supernatural things, you know, the, the dates and all the rest of it, we're also looking at Jesus because he is the subject of prophecy. In fact, Revelation says the testimony of Jesus is prophecy, uh, you know, in, in the book of Revelations. You know, in fact, if we knew all the prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament, if we did a study on it, which we are doing a little tonight, but if you embarked on a study of the Old Testament and you were whizzed back to the moment when Christ was born you would recognize him immediately immediately because the Old Testament so portrays Christ paints him out describes him that it is impossible to miss him and that's why I have a problem with the, the Jews of this time those that rejected him you know, because they knew it was Jesus in so many different ways. Because he is, it is so perfect when you think about him. As immediately he would have been able to recognize him as he began to walk on the earth in person. Such is the comprehensive description of Messiah outlined in the Old Testament. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at some of the, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament uh, that uh, deal with Jesus. You know, and the first thing 
I want us to talk about is the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. And we haven't got to go very far uh, into the scriptures before the humanity of Christ or the humanity of the Messiah uh, is becomes obvious. You know, Psalm 2 calls him uh, the Christ, the anointed one. You know, and that's who we are dealing with. You know, and um, it, it tells us so plainly that he's going to be a human being. And a man in particular. You know, that's being um, mocked at the moment. Mm. Uh, the deity of Christ, you know, that this all is, you know, we, we, we hear in people calling God she all the time now. Mm. Um, and uh, it just goes through me uh, to listen to, to people like that. Uh, but, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, the Messiah is going to be a man. Mm. You know, and perhaps the first prophetic utterance that was ever heard on earth was the voice of God himself. Mm. And when he spoke that first prophecy into the human race, he said these words. He wasn't speaking to a human being, he was speaking to Satan. And Satan here in the form of a serpent. Mm. You know, and what God did in this first prophetic utterance was to condemn him to humiliating defeat. Satan, you were going to have a fling. Mm. And I'm going to allow you to have a fling. And I'm going to give you permission to have a fling. That's how humiliated Satan is at this present moment. Because everything he does, he does by permission of God. Right, that's the that's the, the truth of the matter, it's the bottom line. He says, But the thing is, you're gonna have a fling, but then I'm gonna humiliate you. Mm. And I'm gonna send my son to do it. Mm. And he's gonna crush your head as a human being. Mm. Not as God, but as a human being. So what this is the first prophetic word, I suppose. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. No, and I would call this the, the, the prophecy that sets the scene for the whole of history itself. This is the prophecy that stands out above them all as far as history is concerned. You see, the Old Testament is but a, um, a story of Satan trying to thwart that purpose, that prophecy. You know, and to thwart the lineage of Messiah. He tries as hard as he can. And if you remember a couple of years ago, I preached on, did Satan want Jesus to go to the cross? And of course the answer is no, he didn't want Satan to go to the cross. He did everything in his power to stop him going to the cross. In fact, he did everything in his power to stop him being born. That's what the Old Testament is about. It's, it's about Satan trying to stop the, the prophecy or the plans and purposes of God by trying to stop him being born. Of course, the Gospels is all about Satan trying to stop him or obstruct him from reaching the cross. And since then, 
Satan tries to cloud the gospel message in mystery, in persecution and in confusion. So the whole of history as we see it and as we saw it last week and as we will continue to see it as we go through these studies is all about this prophecy. This is the key prophecy of them all. Satan tries to thwart this plan of God to humiliate him and to rescue humanity. Isaiah 53 is an amazing study on the humanity of Christ. Of course, we see the intense emotions of this person. You know, physical, uh, the physical atrocities that were committed against his body. You know, this was no apparition. This was no ghost. This was no spirit. This was no otherworldly person. When you read Isaiah 53, you have in front of you and the abuse of a human being. His emotions are stirred and his body is destroyed or almost torn in so many different ways. You know, you read it, it's through stripes. 39 stripes. The back of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. His bones would have been showing. His flesh would have been falling off, uh, off his back. And then of course we have these piercing wounds. There are two in the feet, two in the hands, and one in the side. Of course, and the, the, the crown of thorns on his head with real blood flowing out through those bleeding wounds. And then you have the bruising. Of the, the punches and the, the pulling of his beard. And the strikes, the strokes that men would, uh, would sort of land on him in so many different places. You know, it tells me that Jesus was human. He was as human as I am. He was as human as you are. This is real humanity. This isn't um, spirit are spiritual. You can't spiritualize the cross. The cross is a physical spectacle. And it, because it is so physical, then we have to turn our face, says the Bible, away from the scene that is there. Because Jesus is crushed like no other person in history. From one, the Bible says, that one would turn his face from. And then, of course, as we go through the the. Uh, the chapter in Isaiah 53, we talk, there's talk of death. There's talk of a grave. He made his grave with the wicked. As it says, I think it's verse, nine, verse 11, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You know, and it betrays the true substance, the human substance, the fleshly substance, the physical substance of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. No, Hebrews chapter 10 quotes Psalm 40 when it says, Therefore when he came into the world he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body. A body you have prepared for me. Now when we look, well, you know, for those of us that have um, done, uh, started from scratch and things like that, and uh, perhaps all of you that have listened to uh, the ministry in this place over years, you will know that every time God is seen physically in the Old Testament, 
It's always Jesus. You know, whether it's Joshua who's seen him, Moses seen him, um, Sam, Samson's mother and father seen him, Abraham seen him. Many people saw God. You know, and that was always Jesus. <clears throat> you know, and we use the term theophany. It was God manifest in a body. Well, I'm not talking about that tonight. You see, because when he came to, to talk with Moses, he assumed a body and then left it. It wasn't his body. It was a body. When he spoke to Abraham, when he spoke to Samson's mother and father, when he showed himself to Joshua, it was a body that he appropriately got hold of and used to become visible to men and to women. Then he discarded it. But when we come to this verse, you prepared for me a body. A body. You and it's that body that Christ inhabits even today. We have a man, a man, a human being, and he's sitting on the throne of heaven today. He is our only view of God. Our only understanding of God is through Jesus Christ. And this body was given him. You know, when he became a human being when he was born of a virgin he became a human being and that's what it says a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure then I said behold I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will now it's quite strange and you might not have noticed uh, but if you went, did go to Psalm 40 to check that quote that the Hebrew the writer to the Hebrews uh, has quoted you won't find the words but a body you have prepared for me mm. it's they're actually missing from the Old Testament they are missing from the Old Testament um, which of course is an error that has come down to us we hold up in our, in our, our hands a Bible that has an error in it that doesn't include the words but a body you have prepared for me but fear not you know we are doing the doctrine of the scriptures in, um, on, a, on a Friday morning you know it in starting from scratch and um, we are dealing with the way that God has given us so many tests as to know as to come to the conclusion that we've got the real word of God and there are so many manuscripts. There are literally thousands of manuscripts that t give us the authenticity for the New Testament. Not so with the Old Testament. We haven't got so many of them. Because they are buried. The Jews buried them like a body. And they rotted in the earth. So how do we know? How did the writer to the, to the Hebrews put those words in when they are not in our Bibles where well, we have something called the Greek Old Testament goes back further than anything we have and when the Jews in Alexandria in Egypt were finding that they are like us Rom the people finding that they are Welsh was slipping a bit so they've reverted to English and of course the Jews the Hebrew was slipping you know business wasn't done in Hebrew education wasn't done in Hebrew none of the things that mattered were done in Hebrew and so Hebrew became a, 
a, a, a forgotten language. So what they did, they translated it into Greek. And that's where this quote comes from. It was, you know, the, the whole sort of passage is intact in the Greek New Testament. God is, he's got his uh, ways of perpetuating the scriptures. You know, and of course, uh, we can see then that Christ is a human being. And of course, another prophecy that roots Jesus into the human race is found in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. And this is quite special to me, this one. Um, this is what it says. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, when I first went to Israel, me and David, in 1980, uh, we visited the garden tomb. And um, there in the middle of the garden, there was a stump of a tree, a dead stump. And there it was. But on the side of it, can you remember, dear? On the side of it, there was a sprout. After, uh, not, a, not a sort of a sprout you have for Christmas. <laughs> not one of them. You know, there was a... a, a, a <laughs> an Israeli sprout. <laughs> it wasn't a Brussels sprout, no, it was an Israeli sprout. There was this sort of shoot. A shoot that had somehow or other just decided to grow. You know, and they had this verse, what I just read, written on a tile. Now I've been, you know, I, I can kick myself for not going and look for that when I went, uh, when uh, Janice took me over there, and um, and but I and I've been looking online today to see if I can see any pictures. There's loads of pictures and and verses that are in the the garden tomb, but this one isn't there. So whether it has grown so big now that you wouldn't be able to recognise it, but when we were there in 1980, it had just started to grow after many, many years of being dead. You want it is a perfect picture of Jesus. Because here's Jesse. Out of Jesse comes David. And, you know, David uh, was promised by God that his seed would sit on the throne, on his throne. That was the promise of God. And yet we know as we look at history that for 600 years that throne was never occupied by David's descendants. And then all of a sudden wise men came from the east and they went into the royal palace and they started talking to this pretender we know as Herod. He wasn't even Jewish. But he was sitting on the throne of David. But he was given notice. The wise men served him notice. And what did they say? Where is he who is born, not to be king of the Jews, but who is born king of the Jews? And all of a sudden, from that dead stump, that we know as Jesse, there started a little sprout or a little shoot. You know, and we know that that throne will be occupied for eternity by the son of David himself. 
this sprout, or there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of him. You know, and of course we have an, another picture of this in Isaiah chapter 53, where Jesus is, um, uh, is what it says of him, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. You and you, we can see the picture of Jesus sort of spontaneously sprouting out from a dead bark and becoming the tree of life uh, for you and for me. And so we uh, progress through to Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, on the same theme as uh, the same horticultural uh, theme, we can see that uh, in those days, it says, in, in chapter 33, in those days, and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David. In other words, I'm going to start the sprout from the, the dead bark and, um, and a branch of righteousness says God. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely and in this uh, in is this name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. The branch. It was quite annoyed the other day when David started preaching on the branch. You remember that day he preached on the branch? On a Sunday morning, or can, can I remember? Branch. The branch. You people that, that got to preach sermons in these pulpits. I, I was listening to a tape this week and uh, I asked Sophie if uh, she can remember speaking on David and Goliath. I think it was David and Goliath. She said, I, do. I can't remember that, but I can. And David spoke on the branch and I thought, he shouldn't be speaking on the branch. That's my, that's my s- series. I like the branch. You know, and... Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, study. No wonder he went on it. Obviously, he didn't make. Huh? I thought you branch out. Well, anyway, uh, something very strange is going on when we trespass into the realm of the branch. It seems like the Bible can't make its mind up whether the branch is human or divine human or divine whether God whether it's God or whether it's man and here in Jeremiah he is obviously described as God the Lord our righteousness Jehovah our righteousness or as Roger would say Jehovah Tiskenu or Tiskenu that's what he would say Discano. Never a service goes by when we don't get a Jehovah Roy or a Jehovah Rafa or a Jehovah Jaira from Roger. Wonderful. But anyway, that's, uh, that's how he's described. So, you know, in Jeremiah, he's described as God, and yet he comes, it says, from Jesse's loins. How can God come from Jesse's loins? Because if you come from Jesse's loins, then you are rooted in the realm of humanity. You know, and the, who's the branch? Is it divine or is it human? Is he God or is he man? You know, and if we went to Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah comes out blatantly and says he's a man. 
He says, this is what he says, um, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So is he God or is he man? Well, let's go back a few chapters in Zechariah to chapter 3 and we have these words, For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. So in one step we've got the branch is God. In the other step we've got the branch is man. And in the other step we've got the branch is the servant. Well, I don't know about you, but that reminds me of something very, very special. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man. Mm. So this branch is God, who became man, and who became the servant of man. Mm. And of course, as we know, as that verse goes on, he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Mm. Now again, Micah completely blows us out of the water when he chips in with a similar dichotomy. Well, you know, do you know what the word dichotomy means? Good. Because there's something that always clicks along in my mind, dichotomy. I've got to get one of them in now and then. You haven't told us where this Messiah was going to be born, which of course tells us that he's a human being, then goes on and says... He comes from of old, from everlasting, which is an obvious reference to his eternal existence. Mm. So again, we, we are sort of uh, muddled in our minds. Was he born a human being? Or is he God from eternity? Is he born or is he God? You know, and that must be the question that arises when we read such contradictory references to God. He goes on, didn't he? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, even though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. You know, another passage that I love uh, that contains um, this sort of irris, irreconcilable uh, sort of thought, and, and that's Psalm 85, of course, my favorite of all psalms, where it says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness <coughs> shall look down from heaven. Truth, who's truth? Well, Christ is truth. I am the way, the truth. And the life. Where does he come from? Well, he has sprung up from earth. He's been born in the same way as you and I. He's a human being, the same as you and I. But who's righteousness? Well, he, the Romans tells us that Christ is our righteousness. Mm. So where does he come from? He comes down from heaven. He was born from earth, but he comes down from heaven. You know, the branch, he was Lord, he was man. He was servant. You see, it's so difficult. Like my head in would have been on the screen tonight. The humanity of Christ. But you can't speak about the humanity of Christ without realizing 
that his humanity was deity <laughs> and his deity was humanity they, these two natures of Christ are so uh, intertwined that you can't see the join because there is no join because you is a person who was fully human and yet at the same time he was fully God no just one Reference that sort of isolates his deity, his deity is found in Psalm 2, where God speaks of him in these terms, glowing terms, I think. Yet I have set my king, says God, on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Who's speaking? It's God who's speaking. Mm. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there we can see an old range of prophecies from the Old Testament. We've gone right through the book from Genesis right up until the end, through the Psalms, and we see that this person who is about to come as Messiah, this person who will humiliate Satan in his defeat, this person who will rescue his people from their sins, this person who will set up his kingdom in heaven and in Jerusalem, he is fully God and he is fully man. Why? Because the prophecies tell us so and the experience of the Gospels show us so so that's his humanity now we can think about his birthplace and of course we've dealt a number of times with his the place where he was born we've also dealt you know um, quite a number of times about the virgin birth you know and it's a truth that is well attested uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament especially and especially in the Greek, Greek Old Testament uh, this, of course, I mentioned in the second study, if you remember, when we started looking at this. You know, um, where Matthew, the gospel writer, uses the unambiguous Greek word for virgin. See, the word that Isaiah used is quite ambiguous. Although it is the perfect word to use, enemies should say, well, it doesn't only mean a virgin, it could mean a young woman, which of course Mary was. It could mean an unmarried woman, which of course Mary was. And it could mean a virgin, which of course Mary was. So the prophecy was, a young woman, unmarried, and a virgin will bring forth a son. And the fulfilling of the prophecy was, a young woman, unmarried, and a virgin brought forth a son. There's nothing unambiguous about, uh, ambiguous about that. Uh, but the word parthenos, the Greek word parthenos, which the Greek Old Testament uses and the Gospel writers use, can only be translated virgin. There's no other way. So we can see that the translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek knew what God was saying. Mm. And Matthew, who wrote about this knew what God was doing so you know we are quite um, secure in our you know when people tell you I do, you don't need to believe in, in the virgin birth uh, 
to be a Christian. And you could say, well, that's perfectly true. But if there was no virgin birth, you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. You aren't going to believe in it. You're just going to believe that Jesus died for your sins. That's the, the, the way that you get in, uh, into salvation. But if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he wasn't our saviour. Because he would have had sin of his own. That's the problem. That pe- that's the problem that people don't understand. Jesus broke the genealogy of sin when he became virgin born. Mm. He was pure as the driven snow mm. when he was virgin born. He is the only person ever in history to be born without sin. And that's why when Sophie uh, sang that song tonight, which is absolutely fabulous, the words were fabulous in it, that there's only one way. There's only one person. There's only one sacrifice. And that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because there's only one person who's got the qualifications. Everyone else has got the sin. Except for Him. You know, but um, what I didn't mention in those studies, in the second study that we did, uh, was the escape from Egypt. Now this is um, written for us in Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, of course, when the, the wise men came and uh, let the cat out of the bag to Herod. And Herod, being sly, says, go and find and come and tell so I can worship as well. Which, is, of course, was uh, a load of nonsense. God seen through him and uh, warned the wise men to go back another way. And warned Joseph to hightail it out of there and go down to Egypt. Egypt? Why Egypt? Why didn't he why didn't he just go across the, the, the river to 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 the Jord, over the Jordan to Jordan or Syria or why didn't he go up north? Back up to Bethlehem, um Nazareth. Why did they go to Egypt? Well they had to go to Egypt. It was imperative they went to Egypt. Because God had already said that they will go to Egypt. Because he prophesied through the uh, through Hosea the prophet that at a certain point in time he will call his son out of Egypt. That's what it says in Hosea chapter eleven and verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him and called and and loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now I know it is a reference to to Israel. But it is also a reference to Christ. And the reason being is because the redemptive um, repercussions always seem to revolve around Egypt. We notice that the word redemption is used an awful lot when it comes to Egypt. What did God do? He redeemed his people from the tyranny of Egypt. How did he do it? He did it through the shedding of blood. The Passover lamb, which was perfect and was kept perfect, was slain and its blood was applied and every person who applied the blood was uh, escaped the death of the firstborn and because of that curse that came upon the land at that time, Israel were not only redeemed from the slayer, but they were redeemed from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And you and I, when we apply the blood, we not only redeemed from the slayer, 
who is God but we are also redeemed from the tyranny which is sin Mm. which is sin and Satan and that all seems to revolve around Egypt now Egypt to many people is a great story but Egypt to us Christians is the blueprint for Calvary you know, and it's a, a wonderful blueprint. You know, because there the significance of the Passover is so special to us because we know that John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Paschal Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. What does he do? He takes the, the, the slayer and what he gave, the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, the judgment of God, the penalty of our sin, and he saved us from that by becoming the sacrifice himself. And then, of course, because of that, his sin has covered our, our his blood has covered our sin, and therefore we are relieved from the tyranny of sin. So we are in exactly the same position as the children of Israel in Egypt. And there's the significance. The cross and Egypt are exactly the same. It's the blueprint and the antitype that we have. And therefore, Jesus goes down into Egypt and God calls him from there as a representative of humanity. This is what I'm going to do. What I'm doing to you, I'm going to do to my people. I'm going to call you out of Egypt. And you and I, we have been called out of Egypt through the same blood as the Israelites were called out of Egypt. It's the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was slain for you and for me. He paid the debt with his own blood. So there's another lovely, beautiful um, prophecy uttered same six or seven hundred years before Christ, and yet comes so perfectly true in the story of Jesus. And fast on the heels of that narrative, of course, Matthew records the heinous acts of Herod. You know, when David talked and. Uh, in his prayer about what man can do to man you know, and uh, that tomb that we saw in the paper this morning perhaps some of you have seen on the news it just tells us that man is able to do untold wickedness to man and therefore whatever we read in the scriptures becomes credible because of what we see around us you know, and Herod the acts of Herod mm. they become credible because we know what type of person he was he was that type of person now I don't know uh, the age range of the people that were in the lorry but these were under two these were babies toddlers you know and uh, it's it's hard to understand how a man could do such a thing as to slay all the children mm. under a certain age. But sig significantly for us tonight is that this event is also the fulfillment of a prophecy 
given by Jeremiah. Matthew tells us, of course, thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, and lamentations and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. You and you, uh, how significant is that to us tonight? Rachel, the wife of Jacob, who died bringing forth Benjamin while she was in Ephrathah. Now can I remember when we went to Micah, where was Christ to be born? He was to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So this is exactly the same place where Rachel lost her life. The place that Herod slaughtered the innocents was the place where Rachel lost her life. You know, and if you read the scriptures, you will find that she initially called her son Ben-Oni, which means the son of sorrow. And here is a, uh, an amazing sort of um, perspective on the prophecy that we are looking at here, that at that time, Rachel called her son the son of sorrow. No, it was Jacob who changed his name to Benjamin, the son of my right hand. You know, and of course, Rama. The voice is heard in Rama. Well, where's Rama? Well, Rama is also in the city, a city in the land of Benjamin, the son of sorrow. So when we look at all these wonderful things, or these awful things, I should say, there is a wonderful significance mm. to us. Things make sense to us because we have related something that happened 1500 years before Christ when a woman cries out in sorrow in childbirth in death and 1500 years later two year old children are slaughtered the voice is heard in Rama Rachel crying for her children they are her children. These are Benjaminites. Benjaminites. And here they are being slain. And chucked away as if they are nothing at all. And then lastly, what about his ministry? And very quickly. We've looked at his as humanity and deity. We've looked at his birth. What about his ministry? Well, we'll concentrate a little more on his on the, a lot of things next week because we're going to look at all well, not all the psalms but we're going to look at we won't do all of them one night otherwise I'll you know I'll never, you'll, I'll never be seen again if I go home and I've done all the psalms we look at the psalms and a little bit of Isaiah to get a more comprehensive picture of the ministry of Christ but uh, just to just to finish if I was to mention Isaiah 9 we would all feel uh, we would all feel that we were on familiar ground because we know the song in fact we sing the song every Sunday in December and if John is out of way we'd be singing it in November as well for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace is he 
Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. And of course we know it and when you look you'll see again the interweaning or the intermingling of humanity and deity. Jesus is the main focus of the prophecy, you know, and of course, and of the song. He was a child that was born, but he was a son that was given. Mm-hmm. You know, and his name bears so many names bear so much resemblance to the way the Bible refers to God, and yet it also talks of the man who sits on David's earthly throne. Although this reign will be eternal. Confusing. He's God, he's man. Is man, is God. God, man, man, God. Not like that, like that. But if we went to the beginning of the chapter, that chapter, we would read something that uh, we would be tempted to pass over, I think, uh, very, very quickly. And this is what it says. Verse 1 of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first... He lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them a light has shined. And again we can see the Christmas flavour shining through. You know, as we remember, if we remember John the Baptist's father, when he broke forth into this amazing prophecy in Luke's Gospel, it says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet by the way of peace. But it's the first part that I want to finish with tonight. It seems to be talking about the launch of Christ's ministry. Now where do you think God is going to start? Where is he going to start? I know what he's going to finish. He's going to finish on the Mount of Olives. That's what he's going to finish. That's what it's all going to end. It's going to end in Jerusalem. Now you would have thought that he would have started from Jerusalem. The center of it all. The big metropolis. Get in there and you've got the rest of the country at, at your feet. But no, he didn't start in Jerusalem at all. The launch of his ministry was in Zebulun. And the launch of his ministry was in Naphtali. Now these names perhaps might mean nothing at all to us. Nothing at all. Except for the fact that they were Jacob's children. You know, um, can you remember when Jesus bursts on the scene? His first um, sort of foray was in Nazareth, a synagogue in Nazareth. And he started talking about being the anointed one. And what he was going to do, and what what the Messiah was going to do. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to release the the prisoners. He's going to do this, and he's going to do that, and he's going to do the other. You and these people in the synagogue were all whooping up, all amen in. You know, there's a, you know, here is a man in our, in our midst 
given us this wonderful prophecy. And then he says something stupid. He says, today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. Now, what did, what did that mean? It meant that Messiah had come. Messiah had come. And of course, they hated him for it. It offended a lot of people. You know, people are offended today at the drop of a leaf. They, well, <laughs> nothing have changed. These people were offended because he said that he was the Messiah. And if you remember, they tried to throw him over a cliff to get rid of him. Right? Then, he calls his disciples. So he's in Nazareth at one point, And he's in Galilee at the other. Now these are the two sort of um, initial outbursts of Christ when he calls people to become fishers of men and he starts his ministry at Galilee and in Nazareth where's Nazareth? it's right smack in the middle of Zebulun Zebulun is the, the tribe the, the son of, of Jacob and his tribe was to the west of Galilee and there is Nazareth, right in the middle. And where's Naphtali? Well, Naphtali runs up the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So when we look at that passage of Scripture, and it, you know, and it's there plainly for us to see, and it's recorded as well in the Gospels, that this is where he makes his first launch into his ministry. Something that was prophesied all those years ago. All those years ago. You know, and um, Matthew is it's Matthew who makes us aware of this prophecy and leaves us in no doubt as to the meaning of these obscure verses from the Old Testament. So we've seen tonight the deity of Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament. We've seen the humanity of Christ as prophesied in the Old Testament. We've seen the birth, the, the how, the where, the when, as prophesied in the Old Testament. And we've seen the tentative steps of ministry as seen in the Old Testament. How amazing is that? I find that, and I, say, I said this last week, I'll probably say it next week, this is absolutely incredible and blows me away and I, my only hope is that you're ex as excited listening as I am st sitting by uh, talking about it because what we have in our grasp is a supernatural book that no other book can claim you see when we think about supernatural we think of the miracles but the miracles are but stories in the bible they're not supernatural, they're but stories. Mm. What, everything that is done in the Bible were stories. It's the prophetic edge that make, gives it its miraculous. It's supernatural. Mm. You know, if, you, if ever you want to um, witness to people about the Bible, when they say it's only a book, mm. say, oh no, it's... <laughs> Good 
Oh no. It's not. Oh no. It's, oh no. It's not only a book. It's a supernatural book. It's a living book. It's a life-giving book. It's a life-transforming book. Why? Well, because someone 4,000 years ago is talking about something that's happening today in so much detail that it just blows you away. For his name's sake. Amen.